question whether there is any chance that Claudius, that Claudius was um, Hamlet's father. Um, ben remembered something from Act 4, um, and after class he found um, what he remembered. Um, so, and it's relevant, um, so I thought that I would just mention it now, which is that in Act 4, um, when Laertes comes bursting in after the death of Polonius, his father, supposedly, no, <laughs> Polonius, his father, um, we actually know Polonius is his father, you could almost say, um, in representational terms, because of what Laertes says. Um, calmly, good Laertes says Gertrude to him. This is Act 4, Scene 5, Line 113. Um, Laertes bursts in. Um, this is page 1760 of the Norton. Laertes bursts in and says, O thou vile king, give me my father. Um, Gertrude, interestingly, and we will return to this, to her defense of Claudius, after she's told Hamlet that Hamlet has um, made her understand um, how terrible Claudius is and how terrible her love for him is. Nevertheless, um, she's now defending Claudius. Calmly, good Laertes. And Laertes's reply, and this is what Ben was remembering, is that drop of blood that's calm proclaims me bastard. Cries cuckle to my father, brands the harlot even here between the chaste, unsmirched brow of my true mother. So if there were any chance that I would be calm under this situation, that would be proof positive that Polonius was not my father. Um, what happened to him is such that it's the, going to be a law of nature that I will take revenge. There is no way that I couldn't, if I could, if I could find some way to calm myself, that would be proof that he wasn't my father. Um, if we are supposed to, um, well, we're obviously supposed to see, because Hamlet asks us to see, the parallel between Laertes's cause and his own. Um, if we're supposed to understand the extent of that parallel, as a contrast between a character like Laertes and a character like Hamlet, we may also be getting a suggestion, not necessarily a true one, but a suggestion there that Hamlet's notorious, excuse me, notorious, I can't, I can't do it on purpose, notorious calmness um, in this play um, might actually proclaim him bastard, um, at least it might sound like such a proclamation to his own anxiety. And it might be um, something that the audience is supposed to keep in mind as a possibility. Um, it's another place where the studiously avoided question, how long have Gertrude and Claudius been an item? Um, that studiously avoided question, we get the question, but we don't get the answer. We're told we're not going to be given the answer. That fact that we're told we're not going to be given the answer um, suggests at least the possibility as one of many possibilities that Hamlet has to think about. Because, of course, if he kills Claudius, then he will 
be committing perhaps not the first primal eldest crime, but one of the most primal crimes there is, the Oedipal crime, killing your own father, even if you don't know that he is your own father. The story of Oedipus is behind Hamlet as well, um, as Freud um, very famously said. Um, but it's there. Um, the question of how careful do you have to be when you take revenge, especially when the possibility of vengeance is something that you might take against your own father. No one worries, and uh, least of all me, um, that Polonius might be Hamlet's father. Um, and Hamlet's killing of Polonius is not a source of anxiety to him. Quite the reverse. It's strange how unanxious he is about it. But when he kills Polonius, he calls him, he says, Thou rash, intruding fool, I took thee for thy better. And the idea there is that Claudius is Polonius's better. What better means there, probably what Hamlet thinks it means, is um, a more powerful person, the king, the person who is higher on the hierarchy of ranks, that is, um, in the same way that the aristocracy is um, called the better sort. Um, but there's also an important acknowledgement there on Hamlet's part, which he will acknowledge several times, although not very comfortably, that Claudius is, as he calls him, a mighty opposite. That is, that Claudius is someone worth having as opposition. Polonius isn't. Very few people in the play are. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern certainly aren't. But one thing about Claudius is that he really is worthwhile as an opponent. Um, and Hamlet likes opponents. This is a feature of his character, not a feature of the introspection that this play is about. So let me just explain what I mean by that. Hamlet is an amazing play, and um, for a lot of people, the source of modern literature, because it's about a character thinking about himself and trying to come to understand himself and to come to understand his own motives, his own desires, his own character, and his own way of being. Characters are old in literature. Um, literature, in a lot of ways, um, can be said to be the exploration of character. And um, the earliest literature extant um, is always going to have within it some sort of depiction of character, from fairy tales to epics to Greek tragedies to folk tales all over the world. Sometimes the exposition of character is very rudimentary, but there is an exposition of character. What's new in modern literature, not quite Shakespeare's invention, although Harold Bloom calls it Shakespeare's invention. He has a book called Shakespeare, The Invention of the Human. Um, but that's a polemical title and an intentionally provocative one. This isn't quite Shakespeare's convention, but it's invention, but it's close to it. 
is that for the first time, and in Hamlet at the deepest possible level, not only do you have an author exploring character or other characters exploring each other. That is, you are always a jerk, says one character to another. And the first character, the one who says you are always a jerk, is making a comment about what the second character is really like. That's a rudimentary exploration of character. Or, I always trusted you, you were always a good person. That's a rudimentary exploration of character. Or, go to Paris and see who he's hanging out with and see whether he's gambling or gaming or wenching. That's a somewhat less rudimentary, but still rudimentary exploration of character that Polonius is undertaking. Or, oh, I figured out what's up with Hamlet. And I can tell you, he's in love with my daughter. That's an exploration of character. Not rudimentary at all anymore, but a standard dramatic exploration of character. He's behaving like this for a reason. And I can tell you that reason because you may not know it. Or, let's see if you're right. Let me watch him and see whether that's really what's going on. Well, you know, I don't think so. Love that way, his affections do not tend, nor what he spoke was not much like madness. That's a more sophisticated and subtle exploration of character that Claudius has over Polonius. His exploration of character is deeper than Polonius's exploration. Or Hamlet's saying, I have heard that guilty creatures sitting at a play, if they see the play represent the very thing that they have done, will so be struck by what they're seeing that they will confess what they've done. And what Hamlet is saying there is sometimes characters are forced to confront themselves as though they are coming to explore not only the characters of others, the characters that they see on stage, or the, the characters that they interact with, which has been the stuff of drama perennially, but they will start having to see aspects of themselves that they may have been able to avoid or deal with. Suddenly, they look upon themselves. They find mirrors held up to themselves where they explore and discover things about themselves that they didn't know. That's a huge advance on Hamlet's part, that you may start discovering as a human being, you may start thinking about yourself and exploring yourself as a character. So that Hamlet says in his really important exposition of the art of playing that its purpose was and is to hold the mirror up to nature to show virtue and vice their own features. That is, suddenly characters are not simply things that one is, but characters become things that one thinks about in oneself. 
It's Hamlet who says this because this is what Hamlet does, is he thinks about himself. So it's not just that Hamlet is a character. Being a character is an inheritance. It's an endowment. You are what you are because of, in Shakespeare's theory, or in the theory of Shakespeare's time, because of the balance of humors within you, so that some people are phlegmatic, and some people are sanguine, and some people are choleric, and some people are bilious. Um, Hamlet himself has a theory of the humors. He wonders why he's not taking revenge, why he's not acting like Claudius, why the natural disposition of human endocrinology as he understands it, isn't causing him to act in certain ways. And he has a theory. He says, sure, I must lack gall to make oppression bitter. I must be lacking one of the humors that would cause me to respond to oppression. Otherwise, I would act the way Laertes does. It would be instinctual. It would be biochemical, the way I responded to the way Claudius has acted. But Hamlet doesn't respond biochemically. He has biochemical impulses. And again, if you think that's anachronistic for me to talk about them as, as biochemical, it's not. That's Hamlet's idea of gall, which is one of the humors. It's where we get the idea of the gall bladder. Gall was discovered as something that you could find in people, could be found in the gall bladder, and it was thought wrongly, but it was thought um, to be um, a chemical medium for acting in certain ways with courage and with outrage and with a sense of wrong. Um, so Hamlet says, I must, be, I must have a gall deficit. I must be deficient in that. Or I would have fatted the region's kites ere this with this slave's offal, he says. But somehow I didn't do that. And yet, his impulses are consistently the right ones, at least given what he thinks he knows. He always begins as Laertes. So let's again think a little bit about the parallel between Laertes and Hamlet. Laertes, in a way, is a short version of Hamlet. The story of Laertes, if Tom Stoppard had, which he didn't, and which it wouldn't have been as entertaining, but if he'd written a play <coughs> called Laertes, rather than a play called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, if he'd written a play about Laertes, um, you would see a play not so very different from Hamlet. And the reason it wouldn't be so very different is you would have Laertes storming in, ready to take revenge, and then asked to think about whether he wants to do it immediately, take revenge on whoever it is that his first belief, he first believes is responsible for the death of his father. Um, and then he's asked to think, and he does think. And he says, no, I don't want to take revenge on the person who didn't kill my father. I want to take revenge on the person who did. And then he and Claudius have a conversation about what to do. Um, there, he's a little bit like Hamlet, 
which is he starts fast, but he rightly slows down. Rightly because Claudius did not kill Polonius. It would have been wrong for him to kill Claudius for the death of Polonius. It would have been wrong. We might be gratified that, that Claudius has been killed. Some part of us might be gratified. Serves you right, sucker, we might think. But on the other hand, dramatically, we'd be very disappointed. Why would we be disappointed? For two reasons. One, who but Hamlet should kill him? It's ridiculous to have Hamlet kind of luck out. Hamlet himself would have been furious if Laertes had killed Claudius. Um, that would have been a bad play. Um, it's how Norman Mailer would have written it. Not, I knew you would laugh, but I don't mean this as against Norman Mailer. I mean that what Norman Mailer does in The Naked and the Dead is he says, actually, life is not like narrative. And I'm writing a narrative, but it's going to have something that occurs like life, which is the thing that you want to happen, which is narrative shape, um, confrontation, and death. No, random things are going to happen instead. People are going to die randomly and not according to a satisfying narrative logic. But Shakespeare is writing a more or less, well, more and more satisfying narrative logic. And that requires that Hamlet be the one who kills Claudius. On the other hand, Laertes gets a little bit of credit for that because the poison on Laertes's foil is part of what contributes to Claudius's death. Um, and that seems right also. If Claudius, I mean, we're, now we're just going to assume off the record that Claudius has killed Hamlet's father, um, which, as I say, I'm not certain we ever know. But at least as far as satisfaction goes, the death of Claudius, Claudius is certainly responsible for the death of Hamlet and Gertrude and Laertes. We can certainly lay those deaths at his hand. And it's therefore worth it, narratively, that Hamlet is his main executor, executor but that Laertes, with the poisoned foil, and Gertrude, who has died because of the poisoned drink, should also through their participation in these acts of poisoning, contribute a little bit of the drink, a little bit of the poison on the foil to the death of Claudius. Um, just drops, just tiny bits. You don't have to page ahead. Um, all of that yields narrative satisfaction. What wouldn't is for two reasons is if Laertes had killed Claudius. Reason number one, we want Hamlet to do it. Reason number two, we want Claudius to die for something that he's done, not for something that he hasn't done. He hasn't killed Polonius. He shouldn't die for that. He shouldn't be executed for a crime for, of which he is innocent, no matter how many crimes he's guilty of. That narratively would feel wrong, or it would feel like an irony in a play where we want tragedy rather than irony. There are ironic stories like that that do have a certain kind of satisfaction. Um, the most famous one probably in the 20th century is The Postman Always Rings Twice, um, where a character 
um, who has committed it, well, I don't want to give you a spoiler, but I will. A character who has committed a murder gets away with it, but then is executed for a murder he hasn't committed. That's the second ringing of the postman. Um, so the, we, but that's irony and not tragedy. Tragedy requires a certain kind of appropriateness beyond ironic appropriateness for the death of a character. Um, you can see that also in continuing the parallel between Laertes and Hamlet. You can see that also in what Laertes says when he finds out from Claudius, um, from the message sent to Claudius, that Hamlet is returned to Denmark. Um, it looked like it looked like Laertes also wasn't going to get a satisfying narrative revenge. In the Laertes story, Hamlet is on his way to England where he'll be executed. And yay, he's executed, but in fact, Laertes doesn't get the wild justice of revenge. From his point of view, what he gets is the tame justice of the legal system executing the person that he hates. Um, that's all well and good, but it's not what the Revenger wants. The Revenger wants blood. So now we find out that Hamlet is coming back. This is Act 4, Scene 7, page 1765. Um, and Claudius says at line 51, Act 4, Scene 7, line 51, can you advise me? What should I do now that Hamlet's on his way back to Denmark when I thought that I was well and truly shut of him? And Laertes' response is, I am lost in it, my lord. That is, this is all surprising, and I'm not quite sure what to do. But let him come. Now, hang on to that wonderful... I mean, that's a throwaway, perhaps, on Claudius's part. But Hamlet is going to echo those words, but let him come. Um, you should also hear an echo there of Richard II, of what Northumberland says of Richard II. Pity and grief of heart makes him speak fondly like a frantic man, yet he is come. That is, he has come down. Laertes, let him come. Hamlet, a little later, will say, um, let, when he, in the, we'll go over this, but in the special providence in the fall of a sparrow speech, what's going to come is going to come. Let it come. Laertes is saying that here. Let him come. And then he goes on. It warms the very sickness in my heart that I shall live and tell him to his teeth, thus didst thou. That is, for Laertes, he's happy that Hamlet is coming back. It warms the sickness of his heart, the sickness that came from the fact that Hamlet is off to England, that Laertes can't take revenge. It warms the very sickness of his heart that Laertes can say to him, this is what you did, thus didst thou. That is, revenge takes a narrative form. The desire for revenge takes a takes the form of a well-shaped narrative, which is, I will kill you for what you've done. And I want you to know that I'm killing you for what you've done. 
That is what the revenger wants. When Hamlet doesn't kill Claudius, when he comes upon him alone, one reason that he doesn't is that, in effect, Claudius won't know. Hamlet has him at his mercy because he's praying, and Hamlet can just walk behind him and kill him. But that's not revenge, as Hamlet himself puts it, since he'll be sending Claudius to heaven. This is higher in salary, not revenge. That would be scanned. A villain kills my father, and I, for my revenge, send that villain to heaven? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we'll get to it. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, that's the toughest scene I have to deal with. No question. And we will get to it. Um, but it's important also to look at just thinking of that scene. Um, the scene where... So that scene, that scene um, just this part of that scene is important. And it's, it's a huge irony in this tragedy that Hamlet, let's say Claudius is guilty, again, off the record will say that Claudius is guilty, or will say that this is what Hamlet believes. So Hamlet comes in, Claudius seems to be praying, Hamlet says, I'm not gonna go after him now, because if I do, he'll go to heaven. And he doesn't, instead he goes to speak to his mother, and in the very next scene, what does he do? He kills Polonius. So here we are, at the end of act three, amazingly enough, in this Shakespeare play, everyone is still alive. It's astonishing. We've been watching two and a half hours of Hamlet by this point, and no one has died. The best we get is an almost death in the murder of Gonzago, except that Claudius stops the play. So we don't even get to see a death in the play within the play. Um, because Claudius stops it before we get the wonderful death scene that Gonzago would no doubt have done. Um, now Hamlet is about to kill Claudius, and we could almost have a happy ending. He doesn't, and instead we get all the dominoes of death falling. Polonius dies, which leads to Ophelia's suicide, which leads to Laertes's demand for revenge, um, and which of course leads to his death and to Hamlet's death, um, which also leads to Claudius sending Hamlet to England, where Hamlet then forges the letters so that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern will die. Um, and it leads to the duel and all the plots that Claudius has for Hamlet's death, which leads to Gertrude's death. Um, it of course leads to Hamlet's death, and it also leads to Claudius's death. So. Um, you, could, you could get to Claudius' death a lot faster if Hamlet kills him while he's praying. Now, the reason Hamlet doesn't kill him while he's praying, I've already said, and he said, which is that sends Claudius to heaven. So Hamlet has decided, and this shows how extreme the revenge situation he's in is. Hamlet has decided that he does not trust God's justice. That is what we see in Richard II, is Gaunt does trust God. Gaunt does say, 
God's is the quarrel. Heaven will rain down hot fire or hot vengeance upon offenders' heads. You can't get away from God. Maybe here on earth, people are cheating and defecting and acting villainously, but I need not take revenge because (coughs) God will punish offenders eternally. Laertes, and Hamlet seems to believe this, but in a negative way, which is my problem with God, says Hamlet, is he's too merciful. I just don't trust him to take sufficient revenge on Claudius. And so I have to do it myself. How? By waiting till Claudius is doing something that has no taste of salvation in it. Waiting till he's gaming or whoring or drinking, not when he's praying. And then, if I kill him while he's in the middle of doing all that, straight he goes to hell, and then I really am avenged. Now, what Hamlet is doing is actually, in church law, regarded as a mortal sin. That is, killing someone, timing someone's death in order to try to ensure that they will go to heaven or go to hell is regarded as a damnable sin. That's one reason why why people who are facing execution are given chaplains. Why priests are sent to the cell of the, of the man about to be executed so that he has a chance to save his soul. And if you don't give him that chance, you are actually committing a mortal sin according to specifically Catholic theology. Um, but it's the whole God have mercy on your souls thing that's said before someone is executed. You have to, you cannot try to control what will happen to them in the afterlife. Um, that's why people aren't sort of offered last meals of lots of, lots of alcohol and porn and then suddenly shot when they're not expecting it. <laughs> um, but that's what Hamlet would do. Um, and it's a mortal sin. Hamlet, therefore, very interestingly, is saying at that point that his sense of justice is something that he trusts more than God's sense of justice. God's view of what justice is may be one thing. Hamlet doesn't trust it. He only trusts his own sense. Boy, is he ever alone. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a standard reading of Hamlet is that Hamlet is someone who, as he himself says, lacks gold to make oppression bitter, um, and that, he's, that um, he's too sensitive to do something this violent, and he's always looking for excuses. Um, I think that um, that's one of many self-analyses that Hamlet undertakes, is that possibility. I think if that's all it is, um, the play is, not, is a lot less interesting than it turns out to be. And that's one reason that I want to insist that we never know that Claudius is guilty, 
is because that makes a more obvious and more easily demonstrated fact possible, which is that we never know, excuse me, which is that Hamlet certainly never knows that Claudius is guilty. Um, we may know from the scene that a couple of people have already brought up, which is the scene where Claudius says, uses the words, I did the murder, which sounds kind of like maybe he did actually kill his brother, since he says so. Um, but Hamlet doesn't hear those words. And so Hamlet never knows. It's, it's almost as, those word, as though those words are underlining the fact that Hamlet, we know he doesn't hear those words. And it's almost as though the very fact that we are told this, but Hamlet isn't, underlines, underscores for us the fact that Hamlet never knows. Yeah? Nice. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Leave Gertrude to heaven, but don't leave Claudius to heaven. Yeah. Right. Right. So think of it this way. What if the story is written by Faulkner? Um, he did actually write a book called, well, it's The Hamlet. Um, but, you know, it's. We, today we will read the Hamlet. Um, all right, bad joke. Um, he did write a book called The Hamlet. Um, but imagine this by Faulkner. So a ghost dies, or, or Hamlet Sr. dies, and he's really, really, really pissed off about being poisoned. And um, he really wants revenge, this dead person. Now what better revenge, really, than to get the son of your murderer to kill his father. What better revenge than that? Especially since you're really angry at the fact that that father has had an adulterous relationship with your wife and in fact got your wife pregnant with that son. He destroys them both. That's, Faulkner would be very explicit about that. Um, but that's a possibility. That is, from the ghost's point of view, if the ghost is the ghost of Hamlet Sr., which, which Hamlet is not sure about and which we ought not to be sure about. But if he is the ghost of, the, of Hamlet Sr., that's not the same thing as saying that he's the ghost of, of Hamlet's father. Hamlet's father may very well be alive. And then what better revenge than to get this bastard son to kill the man who's murdered you? Um, thinking that he's doing it for you. Um, it's a pretty creepy and pretty impressive um, thing to do. No, Luke. <laughs> yeah? Uh, how do we know that Hamlet, if the ghost is Hamlet's father, how, do we know, how does he know that Claudius killed him? Is he asleep? Yeah, so that, yeah. Um, we could say that if we take the standard reading of Hamlet, that's probably not a problem. In other words, if we take the standard reading of Hamlet, which is that Claudius killed, killed um, Hamlet Sr., and now he's telling his son what happened, that there's knowledge that you're given after death about how you died. Um, that's if you take the standard reading. Um, I don't want to, so I wouldn't put too much on the fact that he's asleep. How does he know who killed him? Um, you get to know stuff when you die. If 
um, the, if this story is true. Um, the question, does Hamlet believe in ghosts or not? Well, he seems not to by Act 5. That is, he doesn't say, oh my goodness, there's Yorick's skull. I wonder if Yorick is going to come around. Um, the very idea, I mean, one thing to, what, I guess I'll just say this, um, since, since we can, it, it'll be useful for, for um, our consideration of Act 5 later. But I've already said that Act 5 only mentions Hamlet Sr. once, um, at, when Hamlet says, he who killed my king and whored my mother. Do you, are you disagreeing with me? Uh, the um, yeah, he does. Okay, Hamlet only mentions... No, he does very briefly, just as a way of, of specifying what the time was. Um, Hamlet only mentions him once. No, you're right, the clown does mention him, and that's important. Um, it's important because um, what he says is, doesn't he use the phrase that Hamlet that's dead, right? Yeah, I think so. He talks about Hamlet Sr. as someone who's dead. If the gravedigger says Hamlet is dead, he really is dead. If the ghost had appeared to the gravedigger, the gravedigger was, I don't have time for ghosts today. Um, I must have drunk too much last night. I have no time for this. Um, the point about the gravedigging scene is that what that scene is about is that the dead are dead. That's, that's the, the effect it has on the atmosphere of the play is that for the first four acts of Hamlet, we're in a kind of gothic world where the dead may return to life. By the time we get to act five, and what the grave digging scene really does is to establish this. When you're dead, you're dead, pure and simple. Death is, I almost never talk about this soliloquy, but there is a line in um, one of Hamlet's soliloquies where he himself calls death that undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. That is, Hamlet says, by the time you get to Act 3, that he doesn't believe that the dead return. Um, it's a surprising but important thing for him to say. Yeah? Yeah, so Horatio sees him but doesn't hear him. Um, there's some possibility, but it depends how you play it, um, that when the ghost is moving around under the stage at the end of Act One, and he keeps saying, swear, swear, um, and Hamlet keeps saying, thou hearest this fellow in the cellarage, nay, we'll remove our ground. But we don't know for sure that they do hear the ghost. Um, it's hard to play it as though they don't, um, because the audience, of course, hears hears um, the ghost saying, swear, swear, just as we hear all the dialogue with the ghost. Um, but you can play it as though you don't. That is, they can look puzzled and you know, cut their ears and just look at each other. Um, so the question of, is there an apparition? Yes. Is the apparition a ghost? Or something, it looks like the king that's dead, and Horatio reports that. Does the ghost say the stuff that Hamlet thinks he says? Maybe. Is the ghost an honest ghost, as Hamlet later tries to say? It, but that raises the question, is this an honest ghost or not? That we don't know. Um, 
And honest there means both truth-telling, but also honest to goodness, as opposed to a devil, which is one of the things Hamlet thinks. The spirit that I have seen may be a devil, and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Yea, and out of my weakness and my melancholy, he is very potent with such spirits, abuses me to damn me. So who or what the ghost is, that turns out to be an insoluble question. And so what Hamlet does, both the play and the character, is to stop trying to solve it and to let the ghost go. That's, that's not going to be an issue in Act 5. And the gravedigger scene is one way that the audience is told that's not going to be an issue. Okay, two more questions. Yeah. Um, is it possible in, in Hamlet's world, I know that he doesn't see it this way, um, but for him to be uh, in killing Claudius an agent of God's justice, do, is it possible? In oh, yeah, he world? says so. No, he says so. He, yeah. says, he says, the heavens have punished me with this and this with me, that I must be their scourge and minister. Okay, so he conflicts with himself when he says that uh, God is just and uh, No, he right. says he can't count on God's justice. Can't count on God's justice. Yeah. But he can also, he can be an instrument of God. No, no, no. This is part of the idea of self-reflection. So I, let me just finish off the important takeaway from that, which is one way of understanding free will, and Hamlet really is a play about free will, among other things, um, about the interrelationship between will and fate. Um, I said I was going to say one sentence, but this is going to have a lot of nested parentheses in it. Um, Hamlet goes to school at Wittenberg. Wittenberg is very famous as the place where Luther um, nailed up the 95 Theses. That, it's, that is, it is the place where Protestantism started. The difference between Protestant and Catholic doctrine, um, there are a lot of differences. But one of the central differences is the difference between a belief in free will and a belief in predestination. Catholic doctrine more or less believes, I mean, this is all complicated, but more or less believes in free will. That is, you get saved if you show, if you act like a good person. If you do good things, you have a hope of salvation. Protestant doctrine is you don't have free will. You are predestined to do everything that you do and to be everything that you are. Um, Denmark at the time and England at the time is Catholic. And the idea of purgatory, which is what the ghost asserts, that he is confined the days to fast in fires till the loathed crimes done in his days of life are purged away. So Hamlet is, Hamlet Sr. is in purgatory, or so he claims. That is a Catholic idea. Protestantism, Lutherism rejected the idea of purgatory. So here you have Hamlet Jr. among many other ways um, that he struggles with this idea. He's struggling with a difference between Catholic and Protestant doctrine about whether our wills are free or not. Now, there, there's a strong sense in which our wills are not free um, in any thought about um, what it means to have a character, which is you do what your character has you do. Good people tend to do good things, and bad people tend to do bad things, and greedy people tend to do greedy things, and those who lack gall to make <coughs> oppression bitter 
tend not to take revenge, and those who have the blood of their father flowing through their veins and who are not bastards will be prompted with extraordinary power to take revenge. And so what you do is a function of what you are, and you are not guilty, as Hamlet himself says, of your birth. The faults that you're born with are not faults that you're guilty of. He himself says that. So what you do is a function of what you are, and what you are was not your own choice. That's one theory. But there's a second theory, a more subtle and sophisticated theory, which is what you are at the deepest level comes out of your response to what you were made. That is to say that you may have an impulse to do something, but the part of you which is deepest in you and which is the part where you feel like you have agency, is whether you're happy about the impulse that you have or not, whether you resist it or embrace it. The very idea of the will, going all the way back to Augustine, the very idea of the will, you don't even have to talk about whether the will is free or not. The idea of the will is an idea that you don't act reflexively that you may resist what you are, again, biochemically being prompted to do. That it's not brain chemistry that controls the mind, but it's the mind that controls brain chemistry. And if your brain chemistry is prompting you into a flush of anger and revenge, your mind may resist that. So the brain and the mind are connected, but in the um, no free will idea, the, brain, the mind is simply um, a phenomenon which um, describes what's going on in the brain. In a free will idea, the brain is actually controlled by the mind. They're not the same thing. The way, a simple way of, um, of experiencing this in everyday life is you want a cigarette, which I'm sure none of you do, but... <coughs> You really want a cigarette, but you really want not to want a cigarette. And that's that conflict where you want something, but you want not to want it. That second wanting, the wanting not to want it, is where it, that's where you feel that you are someone who can take responsibility for her own dispositions. That's self-reflection. That's not, well, I'm going to have a cigarette because I want it. But it'll kill you. Yeah, but I look and I notice that I want a cigarette, so of course I'm going to have one. Um, that's a standard dramatic attitude. That's what characters in drama before Shakespeare did. They wanted cigarettes, they had them. Wanting not to want what you want. That's what you really start getting in Shakespeare except you probably get it in third or fourth and fifth level versions. Wanting to want not to want what you want. Which again we've all experienced um, in real life. Um, I actually am going to go to the store and get a pack of cigarettes 
even though I threw out my cigarettes so that when I wanted a cigarette, I wanted not to want my cigarettes, so I threw them all out so that when there were no cigarettes in my room, um, the fact that I wanted a cigarette, I wouldn't be able to have one. Um, but now, I really don't want to want to have a cigarette, but I'm still going to go to go to the store and buy some because the fact that I want not to want to want to have a cigarette, I don't care about right now. Um, I'm still going to have a cigarette and I'm going to deal with this tomorrow. Um, so all of that, that's Shakespearean character. Um, that kind of self-looping in thinking about what you're desiring and thinking about how you feel about your feelings. That's what Hamlet does. Yeah? Doesn't, the, towards the end, Hamlet himself endorse a kind of a more macrocosmic predestination when he says uh, there's a divinity that shapes our ends or a cube? Yeah, uh, yeah, but that's not the, but that's where character and plot divide. That is what he's, um, and we'll get to that. That's a very good question. Um, and the answer is more or less that Hamlet is saying what we have to do is take care of introspection, of character. Um, what God does is throughout is um, I am punished by being the scourge and minister of God. So again, to try to bring some of this together is a little scattershot, but, I'm, but I think all these questions are relevant and they do all connect, is that if Hamlet were to break God's law, which says you cannot time the death of someone to ensure um, their afterlife. After all, if you could, there would be people who would be very, very tempted to murder newly baptized babies. Oh, look, the baby's baptized. It's washed free of all sin. I'll just keep it underwater, and then it'll go straight to heaven. Um, you know, the kind of Susan Smith view. Um, that's, um, the temptation would be very, very great, and that would not be a good thing either. Um, so, however, if you commit a sin, a mortal sin, a sin that will send you to hell, that doesn't mean that God didn't want you to do it. He didn't want you to do it um, from your own point of view, but it may fit perfectly with God's desire. So that Luther very famously, as his example, um, is puzzled by the repeated line in Exodus that Pharaoh said to Moses, enough with the plague, take the children of Israel and leave. And Moses said, good, thanks, a lot. I'm, we're, we're going off now. And then God phoned it in to Pharaoh. <laughs> and the repeated line in Exodus is, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh said, I've changed my mind. So Moses comes up with another plague. And Pharaoh says, oh no, look, really, get out of here. <laughs> and Moses starts leaving, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he hardens his heart through all ten plagues as things get worse and worse. And each time it's God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Until finally, Pharaoh and all the Egyptians are drowned. Why? Because God disposed his will against his will. 
So, but the point is that, at, that Pharaoh is an example of someone who does a mortal sin, a sin that will send him to hell, but in doing so, he's doing what God wants him to do. Hamlet sees himself as possibly in that position. Now, it's worth noticing that if Claudius, if Laertes had killed Claudius for the murder of Polonius, the death, that could have been God's instrumentality. That is, good that Claudius is dead, even though Laertes is a murderer in killing him because he killed an innocent person. Innocent, that is, of the crime for which he has been killed. So a really important idea for Hamlet the character and in Hamlet the play is to make sure that if you kill someone intentionally, you are killing them for something that they've done. Not because they are evil, not because they've probably done a lot of bad things, but actually killing them for the very thing that they have done. And that's what Hamlet does to Claudius at the end of the play, where he doesn't say, I'm doing this for my dad. But he says, I'm doing this for my mother and for me, both of whom you've murdered. And there he's actually seen Claudius commit the crime. And he kills him for a crime that he is himself witness of, and not for a crime that he can never be sure has occurred. Now again, look at the parallel and also the difference, just to show how this is, how, how this is thematized in the play with what Laertes says to Claudius. This is just after um, his saying, that drop of blood that's calm proclaims me bastard. This is Act 4, Scene 5, page 1761. Um, Laertes, Claudius says to Gertrude, let him demand his fill. It's actually, eh, let's, stop, let's just go back a little bit to, the, to that previous speech. Um, that drop of blood that's calm proclaims me bastard, Act 4, Scene 5, Line 114. The drop of blood that's calm proclaims me bastard, cries cuckle to my father, brands the harlot even here between the chaste, unsmirched brow of my true mother. Um, he thinks of his mother in a way that, Ham that Hamlet can't think of his own. Then Claudius responds with very great and impressive self-possession. Um, again, this is part of Claudius the um, good character that I've been urging. What is the cause, Laertes, that thy rebellion looks so giant-like? Let him go, Gertrude. That is, Gertrude is trying to stop Claudius from attacking, I'm mean, trying to stop Laertes from attacking Claudius, and Claudius shows real courage here, and says, no, Gertrude, let him go. I'll talk to him. Um, this is a scene where Claudius shines. Um, it's also, in a way, a redo of Act One, Scene Two. That is, Claudius is now speaking to Laertes in a kind of impassioned, concentrated version of the way he's spoken to Hamlet in their first scene together. Let him go, Gertrude. So here you have Claudius, Gertrude, and Hamlet. I mean, Claudius, Gertrude, and Laertes, that trio together, the way Claudius, Gertrude, and Hamlet have been a trio in Act One, Scene Two. Do not fear our person, 
There's such divinity doth hedge a king that treason can but peep to what it would. That's Richard II-like, isn't it? Um, the divinity that hedges a king. It's what Hamlet will echo when he says there's a divinity that shapes our ends. Um, but Claudius pulls it off. Acts little, so the treason can but peep to what it would, acts little of his will. Kind of Protestant. Treason can't follow its own will. Tell me, Laertes, why art thou thus incest? Let him go, Gertrude, an implied stage direction. Speak, man. Where is my father? Dead. But not by him, Gertrude quickly says. And, Lear and again, that tells us that Claudius is only answering the questions Laertes asks. He's not showing hysterical anxiety. So Gertrude says, not by him, and Claudius simply responds, let him demand his fill. How came he dead, says Laertes, and this is what I wanted to draw our attention to. I'll not be juggled with. To hell, allegiance, vows to the blackest devil, conscience and grace to the profoundest pit. So conscience here means whatever a pang of conscience would tell me about not killing um, a helpless man, even if he's a murderer, I don't care. Even more importantly, grace to the profoundest pit. That is, grace is an important word here. It's the grace of God. Grace is what brings you salvation. Notice that Laertes here is sounding like Shylock, but with much better cause. I don't care about conscience and grace. Grace to the profoundest pit. I dare damnation. To this point, I stand that both the worlds I give to negligence let come what comes. Only I'll be revenged most throughly for my father. Now, what he's saying is, I don't care about the other world. I dare damnation. So if I get damned, fine, as long as I kill the murder of my father. But also, yeah, let God sort it out. If I kill a person at prayer and God brings him to heaven, fine. That's God's lookout. God wants to be a jerk, let him be a jerk. But I am going to kill you now. So notice that it's the same theme. What happens after death is an issue. But for Laertes, he would have had no hesitation if he'd been in Hamlet's position to kill Claudius at prayer. He even says... Um, in, um, well now, um, in the next scene after Hamlet returns, um, Claudius says, what would you do? How far would you go in killing Hamlet, in, killing, in revenging the death of your father, in killing the murder of your father? And Laertes replies, I would cut his throat in the church, which is just what Hamlet does not do in Laertes' chapel. I, God, I keep doing that in Claudius's chapel. Um, Laertes says, I would cut his throat in the church. So Laertes has the attitude, let come what come in the afterlife. This life is the life I can control, and in this life I'll have revenge. Um, Hamlet, more thoughtful and in a way more ambitious to control God, says, no, I'm not going to kill him when God might help him. I just won't do it. So you see that it's the same issue, and they have separate arguments for how to handle that issue.
Now, let's, one of the, one of the possibilities for why Hamlet doesn't take revenge is um, a possibility that Hamlet himself, and that you brought up, that Hamlet himself um, mentions a couple of times, which is he's delaying. He's finding excuses. He's finding reasons not to take revenge. So the great question about Hamlet um, throughout is the question, why does Hamlet delay? Why does he take so long? How long does he take? Well, we know Shakespeare is careful to give us time indications. We know that it's barely two months at the beginning of the play since, um, since Hamlet Sr. has died. Um, but now, by the time that the mousetrap, the murder of Gonzago, is performed, um, Hamlet says, my father not in his grave these two hours. My father dead just two hours. And Ophelia replies with some surprise, tis twice two months, my lord. So it's been at least two months have passed between act one, scene two, when he tells Horatio how quickly the marriage has occurred, and act three, when Hamlet puts on the mousetrap. Um, he also says, I don't know why I'm delaying. Um, and he goes on to say, I have means and cause and will to do it, and yet I'm not doing it. So the real question is, why does Hamlet delay? Um, the standard answer is, and this answer is true as far as it goes, the question is, how far does it go? That he thinks too much instead of acting. Um, the native hue of resolution, he himself will say, is sicklied or with a pale cast of thought. He thinks about what it is that he's supposed to do, and because he thinks so hard, he can't get himself to do it. However, the question really is, and this is the most important question to ask about the character of Hamlet, the question really is, is this a virtue or a vice on Hamlet's part? Don't say it's a tragic flaw. Um, Shakespeare will sometimes talk about tragic flaws. Othello is certainly a character with a tragic flaw. But the very idea of a tragic flaw is too simple an idea and not an idea that Shakespeare is very interested in. It's an Aristotelian idea. It's not a Shakespearean idea. Do not write a paper on a character's tragic flaw when you write your first paper. Half of you will be, will be tempted to do so. Resist that temptation with all your might. Um, Hamlet thinks about the situation that he's in. And what he does, remember the ghost says to him, I was murdered. And Hamlet says, haste me to know it. Tell me what happened. Haste me to know it, that I, with wings as swift as meditation or the thoughts of love, may fly to my revenge. So Hamlet's initial impulse is always to act immediately. And his second impulse, when he thinks about himself, his second thought is always, can I trust 
my initial impulse or not. Let me think about whether I can trust it. And when he starts thinking about it is when he starts thinking that maybe he doesn't yet have enough to go on. So if you look, we'll end with, with this today, but look and take seriously what he says at the end of Act 2. Um, after the players have performed the speech that Hamlet loves so much about the murder of Priam um, and Hecuba's sorrow, um, now Hamlet can't believe that the players can do this without thought. And I think this, this speech is important because what it shows you is Shakespeare really saying, in this play, I'm giving you a character who doesn't act like other actors, like any play you've ever seen before. Um, you want to know plays you've seen before? I've just quoted one for you, The Murder of Priam. In fact, what he's doing is rewriting a play of Marlowe's there and following it pretty carefully, but making it better. Um, Dido, Queen of Carthage is the Marlowe play. But now Hamlet says, look, this player, he starts weeping and takes revenge. And look at me. I'm real, and I can't get myself to do anything. But then he says, at the end of that, the spirit that I have seen may be the devil. And the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Yea, and perhaps out of my weakness and my melancholy as he is very potent with such spirits, abuses me to damn me. I'll have grounds more relative than this, that is, more related to the um, accusation. I will look for proof that he's actually guilty. And where will I get that proof? I will get it from Horatio's judgment. Horatio, we know, is a person who sees clearly. So Hamlet wants Horatio to confirm his own highly prejudicial view of Claudius. One more second, one more second, you have time. What Hamlet says when the ghost says that Claudius killed him, Hamlet's immediate response, the ghost says, the serpent that did sting thy father's life now wears his crown. And Hamlet's immediate response is, oh my prophetic soul. That is, Hamlet says, I thought he was guilty. Now, Horatio would never have said that. Horatio would never have thought that. So Hamlet desperately wants to believe that Claudius is guilty. He wants Claudius to be guilty. And he wants to want Claudius to be guilty. But now he has to think about that fact. Does he want to believe what he wants to believe? Or does he want to be careful, to be skeptical of what he wants to believe? Horatio is the person who allows, who allows that more morally important second alternative to come to the fore. Horatio doesn't particularly want to believe that Claudius is guilty. So if Horatio comes to believe that Claudius is guilty, then Hamlet will know. And that's going to be the question for us and for Hamlet, which we'll talk about on Tuesday. Have a good weekend.